good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We are in the basement today. Good morning. Good morning to you. What it's is early. The basement reference. <laughs> the basement register, the lowest register. Oh my gosh. I was like, are you literally in a basement? What's happening? No, 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 no. Well, hello. Good morning. Good morning. What a morning. How have you been? What a morning. <laughs> <laughs> we have had the most technically challenging. Morning today, the devil was in full force. Oh my gosh, the <laughs> devil was trying to make this podcast not happen, and it did. It. I mean, just to warn you guys out there, I think I can make it seamless, but this is real life. Things happen, <laughs> and it started out with our guest having a drilling construction situation above them. She went to her car. Then we had other technical difficulties. And our platform would not work. It's been a journey today, but we got there. You know, we persevered. How are you other than this stressful morning with technical issues? I'm good. It was a a lot this morning, but last night I, I was just telling you about how I watched this really awesome documentary called Heal that I want to recommend to all of our listeners. Because if you're listening to this, you're into trauma and going, you know, overcoming and healing. And I just thought it was a really fantastic movie. It's basically just about how different ways of using your mind and your mindset and all of that to overcome things, including very real cancer and other physical ailments and stuff like that. It was, I just think, very well done. I really enjoyed it. I would happily watch it with you at some point again, if you'd like to, because I just like to see your reaction. Oh, sure. (laughs) But yeah, I would love to watch that. That's awesome. I'm going to check that out. I actually love watching movies like that as opposed to reading, but I did actually start a book that I've re-picked up. I know it's it's by Eckhart Tolle and it's called Love Him. A New Earth. And I'm I'm sure I'm late to the party on this. A little bit. But it was given to me by someone very special to me about in 2021. And I have just not been able to pick it up, but I picked it up. And it's all about redefining your purpose and figuring out where you want to go in life and all that kind of stuff. So I highly recommend this book to people if you're looking for a read that is just transformative. I mean, Eckhart Tolle is like one of my favorite people in the whole he's world. Great, right? So just to like, then he's got a ton of books. So this is only the beginning for you. Can and they're very, the they're, they're <laughs> maybe, hey, if you're listening, hey Eckhart, hello, <laughs> but they're very manageable. They're not yeah. Novels. They're because I they're, hate to read. This yes. Is, and it's, it's I don't an know easy if they read. all know this, but he does not read. <laughs> so for a little stand. while I'm, was concerned he may not be able to read. But now you know we've confirmed. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> <laughs> that good old South Carolina education. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. You wonderful teachers in South Carolina. You're doing great. Our guest today, she is just the most incredible, accomplished. I can't say enough amazing things about her. I mean, Dr. Lisa R. Smith. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's just such a superstar. And as a forewarning to everybody, this episode does involve us talking about sexual assault. And so, you know, if there's anybody that's sensitive to that, just be aware. But I think that this was a very important topic that we are both passionate about and she's very passionate about. Right. And since April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, you know, it's really great that we were able to have uh, Dr. Smith on the program today. Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Lisa R. Smith? 
I can. So Dr. Lisa R. Smith is an author, psychologist, advocate, and professor who provides an honest perspective about solutions for mental health issues regarding the sexual assault and rape of children, teens, and young adults. Lisa has 20 plus years experience as a counselor, hypnotherapist, and advocate for the masses of those suffering from abuse and the founder of RightToConsent.com, a sex crime reporting site. Her mission is to raise awareness, prevent, and reduce sexual victimization in America. Lisa believes we are so quick to blame and shame victims of sexual violence because many are ill-prepared to fend off a sex offender when they are approached, and most children, teens, and young adults are not educated on the best ways to deter a sex offender. Lisa writes books that teach her students about sexual violence and children's books to teach both parents and children about the grooming process, give deterrence tips, and help them identify the signs of sexual violence. Outside of her career and advocacy, Lisa is also a one-time stand-up comedian, hip-hop head, and sci-fi fan with an excellent bullshit detector. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Lisa Smith. Good morning, Dr. Lisa Smith. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You can call me Lisa. My students call me Smith. Whatever makes you comfortable. That's awesome. Well, thank you. We're so, yeah, I like Smith. (laughs) Sounds kind of like an agent name or something, but we are so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. You definitely seem like a very busy lady. I am, but thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. This is so exciting. We're thrilled. Well, Well, can you give us some background about yourself and where you're from and what brought you to what you do now? Absolutely. So my background is in psychology. All my degrees are in psychology and I have a master's in criminal justice. So I have worked with young girls, young boys, adolescents are my favorite because they are so brutally honest. If they don't like your clothes, (laughs) they don't like your hair, they'll tell you right then. The beauty of children. (laughs) Absolutely. What brought me to this topic is that one in four girls and one in six boys, and that number keeps changing. I think that it's much higher. But out of the four girls in my family, three have been sexually assaulted. And we have lots of girl cousins. So when I start looking at the number of people that I love that have been sexually assaulted, and sometimes I was somewhere in the vicinity as a young girl, it scares me. And I often wonder who these women in my lives would be if they didn't have that past trauma. And many of them did not tell anyone until they were much, much older and they had pretty much unpacked it, got therapy, got counseling for it. And so now we're raising a bunch of kids. I have all these wonderful kids in my life. I am a perfect auntie because I had infertility issues, but my sisters and my cousins have all these beautiful faces. And my thought is, how do we keep them safe? What is it that we need to do as a community? Because it doesn't matter about the federal laws. It doesn't matter about the state laws. This is happening in our communities right under our noses. And sometimes yeah. we're in the house somewhere, right? Or we're in the vicinity like I was. And I mean, it just pained me to know that I was somewhere around and I could have helped. I would have helped, but I didn't know. 
Yeah. Right. Well, I, th- I think it's a very important topic. I mean, it's something that needs to be talked about more. And unfortunately, it's not. So we are excited to shine a light on it and shine a light on all of your work that you've done. But before we get into all that, I did read that you ended up homeless at 17 and taking care of your own siblings. How yes. did that come about? And how do you think it's shaped you and who you are today? I think it made me much more responsible to answer that question. I think that it made me budget (laughs) much more. The way in which that happened was that my mother and her new husband were moving out of state. And even though I was in college, you usually go home in the summers. So I had to, luckily I had a great cousin who allowed me to sleep on her couch But then my sister went to college and that didn't work. So I needed to find spaces for not just her, but my brother who was also in the military who also came to live with me. And so that was the reason why I ended up homeless. My mom moved away. She thought I was old enough. And here she had these other kids that in certain spaces and certain reasons we would need housing. We would need a safe space. And so that's how I ended up homeless and taking care of my siblings, basically providing shelter for them. So it started out me renting a room. My sister would come home and sleep on my floor. And then we got bigger digs and most of the time lived together. Well, it sounds like you had to grow up pretty fast is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. I think that definitely lends itself to kind of what you do today, you know, as far as taking care of thinking about other people and their situation at a young age and how much a lot of people don't know what they're doing at 17. So I can't imagine just taking care of other people and you continue to do so, which is amazing. Absolutely. I feel like I should police the world because they're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel the same. So we're the fun auntie. So I let you go. I let you go. But I reel you in when necessary. (laughs) I love that. Well, speaking of that, you are a self-proclaimed excellent bullshit detector. How did you develop that and how has it helped you in your life and career? I got to hear this. Absolutely. (laughs) So when I was getting my master's in psychology, because I have two, one in criminal justice, I learned body language. If anyone has the opportunity to take a body language class, it is very vital. In fact, you believe 7% of what people say and more of what their body tells you. Mm. So I work, like I said, I work with youth. They lie all the time. Right. And I ran after school programs and I also ran diversion programs for students who were suspended. And I live in Florida. Not always. I'm a New Yorker people. I'm just a transplanted Floridian now. And I dealt with young boys who were selling drugs. I dealt with girls who were sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, using drugs. And they would come to my program during the day instead of being suspended and staying at home. This program paid for us to get hypnosis. And after that, my world changed. It was so much easier for me to speak to the body than the individual. And when you're lying, you have signs. You you look in a certain direction. You have these little nervous tics. And if I ask the body to explain, I might say something like, why does your finger keep tapping like that? If it could say something, what would it say? 
And that sends the conversation in a totally different direction because your body wants to tell the story. Your body's been with you all your life, but your mouth and your mind is saying, is it safe? Right. And so Mm. as long as I am safe for people, they will open up to me as long as there isn't a barrier in which they can't be themselves, that rapport needs to be established. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to ask the body to speak instead of the person. Right. That's so fascinating. I mean, just on so many levels, one, you know, the hypnosis, but also always been fascinating. I'm, I'm an attorney. I'm addicted to trials and watching true crime, everything. And well, she was obsessed with the murder trial and it was going on. So was I. But oh, were really? you? Really? And so you could probably see his body language the whole That's time. That's one of so the was main I. I was, First of all, I knew when they first arrested him, I said, he did it. Really? Yeah, he yeah. did it. He did it. He did it. Before the Snapchat, whatever video came out, I was like, he did it. Because The other thing you should pay close attention to is the tone. The tone of voice cannot be changed as easily. And people drop their octaves when they're lying. So it's it's Mm. very easy to identify what that octave is. So Lisa, you're a professor, a hypnotherapist, and a diversity, inclusion, and equity curriculum director. Can you explain to us how all of these things are connected and what drew you to them? So as I said before, I moved to Florida and I ran a diversion program, a suspension program that had diversions. So students didn't have to stay at home. They would come to my program during the day. And while I was there, they paid for us to learn hypnotherapy or hypnosis because, as you know, young adults, they often have many stories and they lie a lot. And so hypnosis (laughs) allows you to ask the body for content and information and your legs and your tapping of your finger give you a lot of information. But as I said before, that body has been with you all your life. So it has the stories there and it wants to tell the story. But when people lie, their body starts to react and respond. And when that happens, if you just ask the body to tell the story, you'll get the information. Now, how does that tie into like stereotyping and diversity? One of the universities that I worked in, I co-founded Stereotype Awareness Conferences that ran for 14 years in which we were looking at the way in which people use the subconscious or the unconscious bias that they're not aware of. And each year we would explore the ways in which we did that. So um, currently at University of Arizona, I do the diversity, equity, inclusion piece for much of the curriculum. Since the George Floyd social protests and social justice movements, there is a great need for that because now we're starting to look at the subconscious bias that we hold. Yeah, that's really, I think, very important overall too, because I think a lot of people, you know, there's that whole argument of, I mean, I'm not racist, so it's not an issue, but there's a lot that's going on within the system as a whole that that people just aren't aware of. And Todd was even mentioning earlier to me about how important that actually is within his career field, which 
I'll let him. I'm an actor. And I was telling Laura, when I go to do a union show, an equity show, they are now, a lot of theaters are required to provide a diversity inclusion person there during the audition process and then during the actual rehearsal process and the first day of of rehearsal because they want to make sure that they are being inclusive in the casting process moving forward because it's been so it's not been equal for all these years. You know, there's, there's all these white for, people. For centuries, right? Yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> so they're just wanting the stories that we're telling on stage to reflect the human beings that are <laughs> a part of <laughs> life. Right. So I'm so glad it's happening because it is so important. I think, especially Lin-Manuel, when he came out with Hamilton, I think that he kind of blew the lid off of, you know, you had all these historical figures that were all different races and it, you still got the story. You st- It didn't pull you out of it. It just went to show you these biases were inherently racist, that we were casting people. I'm really, really jazzed that you're a part of that movement. Oh, I, 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 I don't want to be anywhere field. else, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> if, I mean, like I said, I like to police the world. So being inclusive, I mean, it just warms my heart that these narratives are being told. It's not only one narrative anymore. That singular story is so nuanced now that everybody gets a seat at the table. And that is, right. is I think, so profoundly important. Exactly. And I mean, the gag is we still have so far to go. But with having, you know, you being a diversity inclusion person for the for schools, I can't I can only imagine what that's going to do for our future, you know, moving forward. And see, our children are being raised without these stigmas and they get Mm. it. They get it quick and easily. You speak to five year olds and eight year olds. They are like, yeah, it's they, ma. It's they. It's not them. (laughs) mom, right? Get it right. Exactly. Well, I'm going to shift gears for a second because you had mentioned in the beginning about your cousins and and people that have been victims of sexual assault in your family and how and why did you get involved with advocating against sexual victimization and why is it so important to you? It came to me because those were my clients. Those were the mothers of the children. It was those children who approached me because I am a mandatory reporter. They would come to me to tell these stories. And I had students. Anytime I would talk about these topics in class, everyone had a story. I didn't, It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter age. Everyone had a story. And if it's an adult they experienced at a young age. If it was a teen girl, it might've been a sibling or a cousin or a father. If it was a boy, he might've been a gay male who was victimized by some of the boys on his, on his block. I mean, the, the stories came to me. It's not as if I went to seek it out. In fact, I didn't have the agency at the time to start asking my sisters. It was only after I started getting more clients and I had more students and I started talking about these things that my sisters started sharing some of these different things with me. And like I said, my cousin. So it kind of found me. It wasn't like I went looking for it because I'm telling you, I was ill prepared. (laughs) Well, I think you've definitely handled it very well if you were that ill prepared. But it is kind of amazing to me how once things are finally exposed, how much people have been waiting in the wings to like actually discuss all of these things and how many people have actually been impacted by it. And you actually wrote a book 
called Blaming and Shaming of Defenseless Victims in America's Rape Culture. And and I want to know kind of why is that aspect of it so important to you and what prompted you to write that? You know, Laura, when you ask me this question, it brings tears to my eyes because every one of my clients was blamed or shamed by somebody they loved. Someone who told them that that couldn't possibly have been mm. true. Someone who told them that they would get their father in trouble or or it was a university that said, well, we don't have any evidence, so he has to stay. Mm. I mean, the fact that the victim, it's what we call blame the victim in psychology. It's the fact that the victim has to retell their story over and over and over again for credibility infuriates me (laughs) because this is a significant trauma. It is an intimate violation. And the fact that there is no compassion or empathy when this child or this girl or this boy tells you this story, it's almost as if they say, why didn't you do much more to help yourself? And I want to tell any law enforcement, any judge, any parent, because even parents have harmed their kids by telling the story. I had a student tell me that her mother choked her when she told her about a rape, right? Because one is not someone you don't know. It's not stranger danger. It's someone you know. It's usually someone important and it's someone who plays a role in the family that that person who is expected to protect the child does not step up and do that because if it's a father, they contribute to the household. If it's a priest, they're part of the community and they don't want people to know and they're prominent. But do you see a lot of grooming Absolutely. In fact, I tell people that grooming, I I talk about it in that book as well as the other books, the grooming happens with the entire family. It doesn't just happen with the child. Because when this person is known, that means that the parent has to give that person access. That child has to be in isolation and withdrawn from the family. And that only happens through trust. They bring wine to dinner, Mm. right? They're at the holiday party, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so they have to build that rapport with the family. They're the best friend of the brother and have been for the past decade. You understand? So that means that they need to have access to that vulnerable child. That access is so important to pay attention to because they're waiting for there to be a chink in the chain, a weakness, so they can then take advantage of that. It sounds like an entire family can be complicit Yeah, with the whole thing. And you say in your book that collective memories, religion, sexist beliefs, silence survivors, and protect the powerful. Now, can you sort of explain to us and our listeners what sort of all that means exactly? Absolutely. So if we start looking at the collective memory, we're talking about centuries and centuries of vulnerabilities of women, of kids. And usually in war, rape is not uncommon, right? Taking child slaves is not uncommon. So that has been centuries of of socialization. 
But also, do we believe the vulnerable? How many times? It doesn't need to just be a child. It has to be someone who is part of the subculture, someone who doesn't have agency, someone who doesn't have a voice. And religion has played a huge role in the way in which we establish social roles for males and females, hypermasculinity, right? And hypersexuality are associated with gender. And so if you hold a certain role, there's a certain behavior that we expect. And when you don't fit that mold, then we, then we start to ridicule and ostracize you. We hide behind religion when religion has done some of the most heinous things across the centuries, right? I mean, that's another podcast, yeah, right? Exactly. We hide behind <laughs> yeah. religion and we say, okay, well, you are supposed to be pious and you are supposed to be devout and you should not have these sexual feelings. But yet we have a huge scandal. I mean, how much money has the Catholic Church paid the families Mm-hmm. Oh, pay yeah. them off. Because of this huge global scandal, right? Yeah. And yet yeah. people still go to church every Sunday. Yeah. And so we're looking at the patriarchal system, but we're also looking at who is doing it? Who is it happening to? How can our non-action, I call it dis theory. In my book, I talk about Dis theory? Dis, it's just like if you diss me in the street, it's a, a African-American colloquialism, but it's D-I-I-S. You're dissing okay. me, right? So D means you are denying that it happened to me. I means you're. it's an action. You're doing nothing. And I-S means information suppression. You're suppressing what I'm telling you so that my NDA says that you can go and work someplace else. And nobody knows you're victimizing people. It's what we call undetected sex offenders or undetected rapists. Lisa, why do you think that America is so quick to blame the victim? And how do we stop this blame shifting? Sure. So first, we don't have the proper protocols in place, right? Because if we look at the criminal justice system, if you look at any type of investigation, the question is always, well, what were you doing wrong? And what were you doing there? And how did you end up in this place where you were unable to consent? And then there's this thought that, okay, well, if you knew the person, then consent does not really matter. And that's so absolutely wrong because it is the rapport and the trust that's been built that allows you to be much more vulnerable to this individual who's taken advantage of you. So first, it's just the way, it's the perception of it, right? And so then it goes to the credibility of the victim. Just understand that when children are being harmed, there's two realities. The reality is What did I do wrong to put my child in this position, right? And so there's some deniability that somehow, some way, it's not my fault that this happened to my child, right? And so that denial piece from this theory comes in. But then it's like, now that I know this, how do I protect my child, right? And so that's an impossibility if you're not home. That's an impossibility if you go to work and you work 10 to 15 hours a night, 
or day, right? That's an impossibility if your child goes to school. I mean, there are school in school, this can happen. Track coaches, teachers, I mean, the list goes on. Your child will not be with you. At five years old, we send them off into the world. We send them to school. They have all types of activities where you're not there. And so it is impossible for us as a community to say, all right, now we can police our children. But at the same time, how is that possible to police them when we're not there? And so we say, okay, well, then you're siblings. But what if it's the sibling? Who's the perpetrator? Okay, and so it's not your sibling, but it's your coach, and your coach is going to give you a ride home, right? So the protocols are not in place, right? And we don't have what we call bystander effect. There is always somebody who knows, but we haven't empowered them to intervene. There are very few people who intervene. Like people say, not my circus, not my monkeys. It's none of my business. It's none of my business. Right. And people do not get involved. We, we've seen that with domestic violence. We've seen that with abuse in children. We, but, but when it comes to sexual abuse or sexual assault, now we have all of these other issues. And so law enforcement needs DNA. But if you look at it in the 80s and the 70s, where was DNA? We're just starting to get DNA. Right. We're just starting to look at DNA. That's how they decide evidence. But if you're groped every day by your teacher when you come into class or when you leave class, where's the evidence for that? The only evidence might be a video. But how many videos do they have in school classrooms? And now when we look at younger children, the question is, well, I've heard some law enforcement say that they don't want to ruin another young boy's life because of consent. Consent is a big deal, especially when that person is known to the victim. And so there's this assumption by law enforcement, well, maybe you weren't clear with your no, and that might be the reason why this happened. And should we ruin this individual's life because of it? If you are the victim you're saying, okay, so you're picking him or you're picking her over me. And there's this misconception that women do not engage in sex offending or they engage in it at a much lower rate. And I'm here to tell you, babysitters, for those of you who are listening, babysitters, many babysitters did things to young boys as well as young girls that someone's not talking about. So There's lots of siblings, right? So the family unit, if it's happening within the family, it's the law enforcement decision to press charges. Do they wish to split this family up, right? And so now we're looking at it at an existential level. If I take the father out of this home, what does it mean for this child, right? But again, What they're missing is that the only thing you should care about is the protection of that child, and that child is being harmed. If it's a sibling, what's going to happen to this young child? What's going to happen to that relationship? What's going to happen to the breakdown of the family? If it's a teacher, what does that mean for their future? If it is a prominent member of society, the question is, is who is willing to tell? I will always tell. 
One, because I'm a mandatory reporter and my job requires it. If you are a teacher, if you are a social worker, if you are a someone working in the hospital, but you'd be surprised how many doctors will not report. I had, I hope I have time to tell you about this case. I had a woman tell me that her daughter was asking for anal sex four years old. She's four years old. And she's saying all these provocative things. And she knows exactly who's the one who's teaching her child to do this. But there's a court order that says, you visit daddy on the weekends, you stay with mommy during the week. And so as the story unfolded, the father was asking his daughter at four to play dead at night while he sodomized her. Oh my God. So people are probably listening, saying this couldn't happen to a four-year-old. I know four-year-olds and five-year-olds that it absolutely did happen to. I know an 18-month-old that it absolutely did happen to. So the fact that we're not having these conversations, we're not providing these scenarios, it doesn't mean that you will be believed. And so if you happen to come across a doctor who will not look at the body because CPS does not always check the body for signs. They take a report. They don't often look at the child. A child will always tell you that something's wrong. They act out. They yell, they scream, or they become sullen, withdrawn, and they start to isolate and they don't want you to touch their body and they don't want you to talk to them anymore. And they tell you that you don't protect them. They will always speak out. They will always speak out. But we as adults don't often listen. We don't know the signs. And so when they become very serious about their body and who's touching and they don't allow you to touch them, that's another sign. When they become very private at very young ages, that's another sign that says that you should be asking more questions, not less. Right. A lot of what you were talking about, if that was that girl's father, basically that's part of the grooming process. So can you just break down for our listeners, like we spoke about it earlier, but I, w- I want to really kind of go into depth here. What is grooming and what are the six stages of grooming? Absolutely. So grooming is the opportunity to build rapport with your child once that child has been targeted. So most of the time people don't recognize that a sex offender grooms your child for weaknesses. It's not that they don't look at a group of children. They're looking at the child that's most vulnerable, that child who's usually isolated, who usually has self-esteem issues, who usually parents aren't often around because they work. And no, this is not an indictment of parents. Please, please, please understand that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that a sexual predator or a sex offender does their homework. And so they are in these different um, environments to find victims. If it's online, they're going to put out a provocative video and they're just going to look for the child that shows interest. And remember, it's about the targeting and then the isolation. And yes, there are six steps, but I'm going to tell you, honestly, it's really three. This child is targeted. And then that sex offender waits. They're patient. So they can isolate your child from the group or the family. And then once that isolation happens, then the other two pieces come in 
the last three steps, and that's sexual um, advances. And sometimes that starts with images. Sometimes that starts with sex talk, right? Because if your child is curious about sex and it's not discussed at home, this is the end. And most families, when do they discuss sex with their children? Some parents will, some kids will tell you never, okay? So if they can use that almost like a carrot to begin the conversation, then there's sharing of pornography, there's masturbation, there's videos. Remember, it is going to escalate. It's going to be very small in nature. It might start as sex talk. Understand that they will always provide gifts, but it's about the secret keeping, Okay. If I am showing you a nude picture, I don't want you to tell your parents about it. And I'm going to buy you your favorite video game to keep you quiet. For some kids, it's not even that expensive. It's a piece of candy, okay? They do not spend a lot of money grooming your child, but they Mm. will spend a lot of money isolating your child. So that's the key. So they may come into your house, but they may not... Do anything until they build rapport with the parent or the sibling, and that person feels that family member feels comfortable leaving the child with that offender. That's how it starts. Like I said, then it becomes where can I isolate the child? Well, in the car ride home for the family that gives your child a ride home, and they and that child stays. That's not uncommon. Mom's not home. Such and such parent will pick you up. You'll all go back to their house and I'll come back and get you. That's isolation. It's almost immediate isolation because they're in the car. And so then it starts with touch. How far up the leg can I touch this girl, this boy? What part of the body can I touch without them getting upset? Right. So if that child is, if you touch their leg or their knee and they protest, that's not the child. They want the child that's going to let them touch the inner thigh or touch the bottom and not say anything. And if that child doesn't say anything for five times, then that offender knows I have five times I can touch this child before they say something, which is the reason why educating your children much earlier and the scenarios is so vital. But what if it's not an adult or an older child? What if it's their peer? My niece was approached at four years old as well. She was in school and one of the kids demanded that she show her private parts to him. And she never told her parents until she was 10 years old. So like I said, if those scenarios aren't happening or being talked about and discussed, then how does your child know that they're going to be approached from all these different angles. And they want, and and here's the thing, the big mouth who says, if you touch me, I'm telling my mom, I don't care where you touch me. The big mouth moves the sex offender along. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to kind of ask is what are some very concrete ways that parents can prevent this kind of violence from happening? And once they recognize that it may be happening, How do they then address it? Well, the first thing I want to say is we want parents to be proactive. Proactive means that it's not happening to your child. Reactive means Mm. that it's happened and now we have to help. We have to help keep the sexual identity intact. Okay, so with parents, 
parents need to be clear that I'm going to educate my child just like I do with body boundaries. I'm going to start talking to them about potential scenarios that they may find themselves in. Because the child and the parent need to work collaboratively to keep the child safe. Just like they collaborate on all other things, they need to collaborate on the possibility that they may be approached by anybody, not just a man, but they may be approached by anybody. And if these few things happen, because the beautiful thing about this is that the scenarios, there's not a lot of scenarios, right? The scenario is, is somebody talking sex talk to you? Yes, I know it's taboo. Yes, yes, it might sound fun, but it can lead to these things. Is someone showing you their private parts? Even if it's their little friend, even if they don't want to tell you, they're thinking about it. The important piece is not for them to feel shame when these things are happening. They need to know that mom and dad, brother and sister are not going to shame them make them feel bad that they didn't come to them sooner. My question always is, listen, I want to keep you safe. Please tell me how I can help you. And if I don't know what's going on, I can't help you. I think it's important that parents build a safe space for a child to talk to them about it. Who offered you candy to touch your butt? Who offered you a Game Boy, a Switch, or whatever they're playing these games? Who offered you a gift to touch your private parts? Who offered you a gift to show you videos, naked pictures? Because those are the conversations, the important conversations that should happen. It were you When you were playing online, did anyone try to do a sidebar chat? Because gaming, don't get it twisted. Mm -mm. People are not watching dancing videos. Gamers, 73 billion on YouTube. Gamers, talking to people all over the world. You must pay attention to them playing their games online. Yeah, for sure. What are some of the best ways? I mean, that's great to have parents be proactive and ask all the questions. Just keep asking questions and get, getting more specific and more specific. But how can, what are the best ways we as a society can help, even if we're not parents, if we can help fight back against sexual violence as a whole? Okay, first, the collective needs to change the way in which reporting is done. Most people will not report. It can happen to their child, they won't report. So on my TikTok and my IG, I list the statistics because I'm big on statistics. 975 sex offenders will go free and are free. Only 25 of them will go to jail. That's from the RAIN site. It's known. Why is that? Because we will not report. If it happens in our family, we will not report. If it happens to the neighbors, we will not report. We won't have the discussions. Reporting is so vitally important because that's how we can identify the people who are out there trying to stay undetected. Okay? The key is to bring them from undetected to detected. Those sexual registry, yeah. sex offender registries are yeah, important. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but that only happens after we know. Right. Most won't report. 
okay? And if they're not going to report, then we're fighting a battle that we're never going to win. So the reporting is on the families. But the proof, you know, you having the background you have in like kind of uh, sussing people out, how do you prove if there is no proof and it was just those two, these two people, you know, the kid and the, and the perpetrator and they were by themselves, do you just have to literally believe the victim? And that's it. No, you must. The first thing that you should say to a victim is, I believe you. I believe you. But I mean, in prosecuting, I was just asking if you're going to prosecute these pedophiles, you know, and these these abusers, and there's only two people in the room where it happened, what do you do? How does the police force combat that? I mean, how does the prosecutor prosecute that if there's no proof? The sex crime laws have changed. It's not that there isn't a proof isn't proof. The individual telling the story tells you this happened. In domestic violence situations, they look for bruises, right? But in groping, you don't have bruises. You have a body violation. So you prosecute even the groping. Okay, you prosecute even the groping. Why? Because statistics say that less than four percent are false reports. Less than four percent. I think that is a really important thing to emphasize to like everybody in the world. Of course, there's always going to be the outliers in a situation. But like this is too important of an issue to use that as an excuse of, well, what about that one woman that wants to get paid off or whatever. And it's like, it doesn't matter because 96% of everybody else has been a victim of this. So in the end, what is so wrong with believing every one of them? The first thing we want to understand that a person who has extensive detail is not lying. If they can tell you what they smelled, if they can tell you how it felt if they can if you can see the visible shaking you know that there was a violation but the other piece that people most of the time misconstrue is that this person is telling you this for their own well-being because they want you to do something so the groping cases must be prosecuted equally but let's be clear, even when we have DNA evidence, there's over 200,000 rape kits that are untested. Law enforcement knows there is DNA available and they're sitting in warehouses across the country untested. And once that goes into the CODIS, which is C-O-D-I-S, it finds a perpetrator who may have been arrested in another crime. And when we start, and that's what we need donations for to get those rape kits tested, then we can start pulling these people off the streets. But let's be clear, the laws only put them in jail for a short period of time. Some get a year, some get 90 days, some get maybe five (laughs) years, depending on the number, right? When we talk about major cases, like a Sandusky, he's in there for life. Epstein, someone who's prominent, he got a year. Well, he got murdered, but... (laughs) House arrest or something. He could go to work every day and continue, right? So we have to go state by state and look at the way in which we're prosecuted. And then, you know, I had a pedophile who lived upstairs from me. 
Pedophiles live in your neighborhood, right? We need to talk to them. We don't need to shame them endlessly because they're going to come back into society and we need to have rehabilitated them or else they're going to start all over again, right? But we need their guidance because they're the ones who tell us what we're looking for. They're the ones who must help us build the protocols. They're the ones who have the proclivities that we're interested in to keep our nation safe. That's what we want. We want to bring this collaboration of people who are providing details where we can come up with protocols that are going to keep the majority of our vulnerable populations. Because I can't just say kids, because when we talk about young girls going to school, the red zone is between August and November, where a girl who is a freshman or an LGBT IQ is going to be sexually assaulted within those few months as a freshman. The numbers don't lie. Okay. So we're not doing anybody any favor by not prosecuting. We are only harming more because one, we don't know who's detected and who's undetected. And two, we are not willing to report and we're not willing to prosecute. Well, I have a question in reporting. What if you are an adolescent, you get assaulted, but your mind, because the mind can play tricks on you and it, it can get suppressed. And then what if it's brought out in hypnotherapy? Do you then as an adult move to prosecute your perpetrator that was your babysitter years ago or whatever the case may be? Do you, or do you at that point, are there, is there a statute of limitations because you didn't speak on it? Okay. So if it happened to you as a child, from what I understand in certain states, you have a lifetime to come forward. But I believe it has to be under 12, and it depends on if each state follows that guidance, right? But then there are those who have statute of limitations, right? So after you become a certain age, those statute of limitations kick in. But even still, even if they kick in, you still should be out there saying, Lou, you did this to me. Even if the law does not support you, we need more tribunals, if that makes sense. Because many of these sex offenders languish for 20 years. Nothing happens to them. They're out doing what they can to fulfill their needs. And more and more children are getting added to the list. And they get to move to another place and that community knows nothing about them. But if you are telling the story, if we're going to blame and shame anybody, that should be the offender. They should not be able to move to another community. And not be detected. I don't, I don't really understand the point of a statute of limitations on this at all. Because the theory is as if they've rehabilitated their self over that time. They're no longer, in theory, they're no longer committing that crime. They're no longer. But that's for people like there's statute of limitations for somebody who's never been accused before at all or been put in prison and whatsoever. There's statute of limitations of how long time can go on that nobody has said anything. It's just that it's been 20 years or whatever. So therefore it's too long ago. Who cares? Maybe it's a memory thing. Like maybe you're just bringing this out for no reason, but it's like, I just don't see the point of that for unconvicted people. I agree with you, but. (laughs) So Todd brought up an important point about what if they remember this in hypnosis or they, most of the time people remember it in dreams. 
They come oh, to wow. them d- during dreams. You don't even need ther- therapy. One thing about the subconscious, if I could speak a little bit about it, is that the subconscious is there to protect you. And so it will hide this information and it'll tuck it away. But you will develop different types of anxiety and obsession to hide it. So then when you seek therapy, then you start having these this recall, okay? Again, that's denial. Repression and suppression is denial, denying that there was this violation. But people do that to, to save their own psyche, their own well-being. One, because maybe you were young and didn't know what to do. Maybe it was easier for you to repress it because, you know, a six-year-old doesn't have enough tools in their toolbox to know what to do. So it's better that they block it out because they don't know what to do. And thinking about it is just too much for them, right? So that's why the suppression is there. It's there to save you. But when you are old enough and you have agency, your subconscious will come back and say, yo, this is back here. We need to deal with this because it's not going to allow you to move forward. And you're going to find yourself stuck in a rut and not understand why. It says we're now comfortable. So just like murder, we should not have a statute of limitations on rape, on sexual assault, on sexual violence. But as I said before, as a collective, we need people to take it more seriously. And that's the conversation is that this is serious. This affects a child's sexual identity. And I'm not talking about sexual orientation. I'm talking about sexual identity, the way they experience pleasure from touch. The love that we have for sex, that is skewed when you are sexually assaulted. That could make you more provocative or it can make you celibate, right? There's so many things that happen to the sexual identity of youth when they're victimized. And basically what you're saying is if we don't address it, if we don't stand up for them, if we don't show up for them, then it's okay for them to walk this path of pleasure with issues. I have a question for you that might be, it's on topic, but I just, I want to, want to get your opinion on this. We interviewed a famous actor and drag queen, Willem, who was in A Star is Born and was on Drag Race and all this stuff. And he Mm -hmm. talked about, she talked about whatever her pronouns are right now, talked about being a hooker when they were in their early teens. And the way that he, in the interview, the way he described it was that he actually, he sought it out. He sought out this sexual energy and he was, you know, 15, 16, 17, and sometimes, and I think at one time, 14. And so even to this day, Laura and I were talking about this after the interview that it didn't seem to register that he was a child. He he takes full responsibility because he said, oh, I wanted it. I, I wanted it he was still a victim, right? Because you can't at that age sort of, I wanted to ask you that you can't process at that age. Your prefrontal cortex is like not developed enough to even process. No. And it takes 25 years for that to develop. They don't tell you that, but it's 25 years for that to develop. So I am so glad you brought this up because if sexual assault happens repeatedly and often, that child begins to experience pleasure. Sometimes the first time they experience pleasure, right? They're not really well-versed in their own body, 
but they seek it out, which is the reason why a father can get a daughter pregnant because now she is his lover. There is a fine line between this abuse and pleasure. And yes, they will seek it out. I have had clients and people tell me that they have selected a husband that looks like their abuser because there was pleasure associated with that sexual relationship. It is a sexual relationship. It is pleasurable. And at some point, that individual cannot differentiate or dissociate, which is what is needed, dissociate the pleasure from the harm. And there are a lot of children out there. You go to many strip clubs. In my book, The Blaming and Shaming of Defenseless Victims, a lot of the girls on the pole were sexually assaulted. They have sexual abuse history. They have sexual assault history. And so that's why when you start acting out sexually provocatively, I always ask, you have sexual assault history? Yeah. When people who scream the loudest about why is somebody talking about it, what do I say to them? Do you have sexual assault history? Because oftentimes the number is so much bigger. Mm. And we're looking at one in four, I would say, mm, we probably are looking at half the world, but they didn't report. So when a Kellyanne Conway says, oh, why is this a big deal? Why are you talking about it? And what does she say in the next vein? I have sexual assault history. <laughs> so she said that it's in her like, book. Yes, she did. It's like, oh, yes. So we should do what you did, not tell anybody. No, that was never the right response at all. The response is you tell as many and you tell as often, right? Because that's how you release the shame, the humiliation, but more importantly, You release the guilt associated with the fact that you couldn't protect yourself. Damn your parents. You couldn't protect yourself. And I'm here to say you weren't supposed to be able to protect yourself. You didn't expect this would happen. You didn't expect someone would have targeted you. You wouldn't expect it. So how do you know what to do if it sometimes it happens out of the blue, completely unexpected? You've been hanging out with this person for the last 15 years and in less than I'm promising you nine minutes you now have sexual assault history yeah this just reminded me a lot I'm a huge fan of Dak Shepard's podcast armchair expert but he is he personally experienced sexual assault as a child and he talks about it openly as far as he kind of relates it to also later developing a lot of addiction issues and and things like that but that he a big issue he still grapples with is that there was a point where there was some pleasure and some enjoyment and he and that he feels shame and guilt about that. So I guess once somebody has recognized that this has happened, that that they are have spoken out, what are the best ways for people to actually move on and heal from that trauma of sexual violence? First, forgive yourself. Okay. Forgive yourself for the numerous thoughts that are about to flood into your mind, start forgiving yourself, right? Because you couldn't protect you, right? It comes suddenly, it happens 
in split seconds and it's over just that quickly. So forgive yourself and then seek a way for you to start celebrating yourself, right? Because that victimization has taken something from you, taken your agency. So it is one thing to get to a safe space, get to a safe place, because sometimes that victimizer lives with you, intimate partner violence and parents and siblings. And so get to a safe space, find a place where you feel safe. And when you get to that space, because the self-talk is so vitally important about how a person uses their resiliency to come out of this trauma. And the things that you tell yourself is, I love you. I'm so sorry that this happened to us. And I really, really, really will do everything in my power to help us heal. That needs to be a constant affirmation that you get help. And sometimes getting help means if you can't leave the area and you can't leave the space, because there's a lot of kids that can't leave the space. And, you know, this tear makes me cry because I know kids like this who can't leave the space. I'm the only one they told. I have to do my job and I promise them I will do my job. But let's say the investigator gets there and they're ill-equipped and that child has to stay longer. I always tell them, spend as little time as you can outside of that home. Please come home when you know it's safe. And find someone to tell your story so they then collectively help you stay safe. And, find, and so then if you're not available and if you're not around, always, if you have to stay in that same space, make sure you have witnesses with you. If you're going to be in the kitchen washing dishes, tell your sibling who wants the best for you, stay here and don't leave me. Because that investigation is going to take some time. And I hate that it can take a week and that people might not show up for at least a month. That is disturbing. But in the meantime, you still have to find a way to be safe. And if you can, that's what you do. But like I said, I love you is what you have to say every day. I will protect you when I can. And I will get us help. Okay? Now, if you're an adult. And it was not your fault. And you can't afford it because that's another thing. You know, therapy is expensive. If you're an adult and you can't afford it, there's guidance counselors. There are therapists with sliding scales who know that you don't have the money. There are groups. There are online forums. You can start IG forums, Facebook forums where you get to discuss it because if it's hidden away in the body, it becomes sickness. If it's hidden away in the body, it becomes sickness. And it can manifest into other sicknesses. Yes. Yes. So the expression of it is valuable. Get to somebody who knows what you've been through. Not the haters. Okay? <laughs> we don't yeah. need no haters here. Who, not wish, no. who know nothing about it. And a talking ridiculousness. Get to someone. Share that story. Build camaraderie. There is safety in numbers. But the more people that share it, the more they're going to be heard, the louder that voice is going to be. And when we start speaking as one voice, then the federal and the state levels start to change. That's why the Me Too movement was so prominent. 
But what I tell people about the Me Too movement is because it started as kids too. You ask most of those women from Me Too, they were kids, teens. Some of them, their first sexual experience was with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and they were sexually assaulted, right? So Me Too is really kids too. And kids too, I believe, is much bigger than Me Too. Oh, wow. Kids too. Is that a movement? Because it should be. No, but that's what I've been using in my hashtags. Let's do it. Let's Kids too. And that, that is a much bigger number. Like the Parkland kids from the shooting, they really had me. They really showed me that, listen, <laughs> if we scream loud enough, if we stop going to classes, you will pay attention to us. If we have mm-hmm. massive walkouts like Greta Thunberg, who's the environmentalist who is shaking things up at such a young age, and she has autism, right? Kids have a valuable voice and they mm-hmm. can use it any day of the week. They're much more powerful than us. They change the way things are done. This new generation has a voice that we never had, you know, and so I feel like they... And that's because we're doing good parenting. (laughs) That's because we love our children now. That's because we listen to them. They are empowered because they're confident enough that somebody's going to hear me. All you have to do is teach them scenarios. Trust me, they want to stay safe, just like you want them to stay safe. You teach them what's coming. You have the conversations of what could possibly happen. And they will rise to the occasion. They will defend themselves if they need to. So you think giving them the tools by talking to them about it, what's a good age to talk to your kids? Is it ever too early? As soon as they know the body parts, we teach them body boundaries. We teach them that people are not supposed to touch you. And even people who are responsible for their caregiving, like when they wash them up and stuff like that. Because a three-year-old may say no and no and no, but you tell them, say no and push the hand away, 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 and tell them to keep doing that until mommy gets there. So they need to know that that person shouldn't be touching them like that, even if it's somebody who's responsible for them, like a babysitter. And if they don't like what's happening, no one pushed the hand away, no one pushed the hand away, no one pushed the hand away. But they also want to tell you, you know, some of the conversations is, did someone touch you here? And sometimes I say, just point. And if they try and brush your hand away, you say, mommy is not, or daddy is not trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to make sure that nobody is touching you when I'm not here. And so as they get older, they have more voice. They have the voice, right? And so you can, you could, like I said, look at eye blinks, look at tapping, look at withdrawal, look at how they are responding to the conversation you're having. Because a child that is not happened to, like, no, mommy, why are you asking me? You know, and it's play, 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 no trauma. A child that has happened to, is very secretive about it, very um, quiet about it, doesn't necessarily want to share. It might take them two hours before they share it with you. Give them the grace and the space to share it. Do not push them because if you push them, you push them to repress it, okay? And so when they're ready, they'll come back and tell you what happened, but they need to know it's safe to tell you and that you're not going to flip out. And even if you want to flip out, you'll go. I love you. I'm sorry this happened. I believe you and I will get them. (laughs) 
They need to know that a consequence is coming. (laughs) Avenge them. We need to be avengers when this happens because that's the only way it's going to stop. I don't want any of my loved ones to be harmed. Older, even elder abuse and elder sexual assault happens in nursing homes and all places. And we never touched upon that. I don't want anybody to be harmed. I can't stop them from being harmed by the ways of the world. But I can give them scenarios that says this could potentially happen. And I need you thinking about it. And we, as the Avengers and the superheroes of the book, are going to do something about it. Because they need to know you're going to do something. That's a really good message. I think that that's a good way, I think, in the moment. Handle it in the moment so it doesn't become something that they have to have years and years of therapy or behavior that they don't understand or that they repress it because they can't work with it. It's like, deal with it now, even if it's uncomfortable. I think it's really profound what you said that a child that has not experienced that will be like, what are you talking about? Whereas if like a big thing I took away from your children's book that I just loved so much is that there are signs and it was a lot of withdrawal and isolating and not wanting to talk about it. So I think that everybody should take a note from that book, literally, (laughs) and go get the book and all of that to know where those signs are, what the signs are, what the next moves are. And And you emphasize in the book so beautifully how much support was rallied around after it was told to a friend, then it was like, I'm getting my mom. And the kids actually solved the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it gave them the agency. That's the most important piece. Yes. Yes. And the kids solve the problem, not the adults. It's the kids who solve. They're solving all of our problems now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But it's usually this is the other piece that we didn't talk about is they'll usually tell a, a friend. And even though they're three and two years old, they'll usually tell a friend. And that friend will just lackadaisically just express it. And if you are a mom or a dad and you hear that story, you immediately investigate. Don't leave that other child that's not in your house alone. You find them, you talk to them, and you build trust. So you remember, it's about consequence. They need to know something is going to happen that supports them. And they need to be out of that unsafe space. Listen, you being on here today, we cannot thank you enough. It's been cathartic, I think, for both of us. I think the listeners got their money's worth today. (laughs) All of our technical issues, (laughs) we persevered. Yes, thank you so much for (laughs) sticking with us. I am not going anywhere. The The stories are real. These are real people, as both of you are showing me. This is happening to real people, kids too. So we're going to be vigilant. Exactly. Hashtag kids too. We will obviously put in the show notes everything how we can find Dr. Lisa R. Smith, but we just can't thank you enough for coming on the program today. I think you agree, Laura. Oh my God. (laughs) I can't even, I mean, words. So we say this, you know, no, no offense to everybody else. We love you all that we've interviewed, but I think this was a particularly important, very special episode, necessary episode. So again, just thank you so much for coming on and a thousand percent. Thank you for sticking with all of the crazy stuff that was going on with our, all of our tech stuff, but I do not mind at all. We will be in touch 
about all of this because this is very important and we'd love to have you back anytime. Anytime you need me, call me if you need me, okay? All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Of course. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye now. Whoa. Whoa, I think is the best word you can possibly say. The amount of information that we just got in that podcast was worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. The work she's doing is so overwhelmingly important that she's just a very special doctor. Yeah. She is a very special human and she has a purpose. And even in the beginning of the interview, she was getting super emotional just talking about how passionate she is about helping children and young adults survive sexual assault. And I'm a fan. Yeah. No, I think she, I think you said it best when you said she was a badass and a rock star because Mm -hmm. she just is. I mean, she just like has a way of putting things in a very matter of fact, relatable, and also I think with the perfect amount of fear to get across the fact that this is that important and that people need to listen, not just listen to her, but listen Mm -hmm. to others that have gone through this, believe people, that that is literally the only way we're going to change this overall because it can be a, a random controversial conversation starter topic that people can talk about at parties about, oh, well, do you think we, t- we briefly talked about the Kavanaugh thing about that kind of stuff, but, or Epstein and you can make jokes, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, this impacts our entire society because 100%. as this goes on, just like with everything else we talk about, every other trauma is there is a cycle that continues. And until we break the cycle and until we address what's actually happening, Nothing is going to change. And so if you don't want your children to be victims of sexual assault, then you need to talk about your own issues and believe anybody else that's talking about sexual assault. So it just all around, I just feel like she, her background, I mean, the fact that she's got a PhD in psychology, but also, you know, a master's in criminal justice and has this background, but does this also as a completely out of the deep, deep desire to make change and not to profit off of it or anything like that. It's just, you can tell that there's a serious passion there with her. It's incredible. Yeah. And I love the fact that she drilled home that parents need to create a safe space for their children to talk about this stuff. Yes. It is so important for a child to be able to go to their parent and say, this person touched me. Yeah. This person hurt me. And I think that not only that, but there just needs to be more, maybe even awareness in schools. Yeah. I remember don't take drugs. We yeah, were that was the literally dare, when you were t- we were talking the dare about program. yeah we were talking during the interview I we were talking about this at some point about us growing up in the eighties and nineties and it literally came to my mind that all people were ever talking about was dare drugs and drugs yeah dare as dare, if yeah. like mm-hmm. us you know ten year olds were being or doing meth like I understand that it was uh, maybe a good somewhat good message but it was like 
this seems so much more important. So have you seen that TikTok that looks like it's from the 90s where the lady's talking about it's a school a video they used to show in school and the lady and the, the teacher's like talking about abstinence and the, the the kid goes, "Well, what if I don't want to wait until I'm married to have sex?" She goes, "Well, I guess you're just going to need to be prepared to die." Oh my god. I well, you know I don't watch TikTok, but yes, I will find that just I to died. see it because <laughs> I guess you're just going to need to be prepared to die. Oh my God, this is what we were giving children in the I in the nineties. I know we were so ill-equipped. We but were. I think she. That's what's so awesome about her is that she was like, when it comes down to it, you can't blame yourself. You have to forgive yourself. You have to understand that you did not know what was going on. And right. what we can change about that is that our kids and the next generation can know what's going on. But that requires us to do something about it. We can't just expect it to happen. And this new generation, we I think we touched on this in the podcast, but this new generation is taking no prisoners. They are (laughs) full on in your face. No, we're not going to continue this generational trauma crap. We are actually going to look you in the eye and say, well, this happened to you when you were a child, but that's not going to happen to me. I love that she brought up Greta Thunberg because she's like one of my personal heroes about, I don't know if you've watched any of her speeches, but- Yes, I have. I love the one where she's like, I want you, like, I'm pissed off at you people. Mm-hmm. I am furious. Everybody should be panicking. I don't want the, people. The how dare you speak? Yeah, how dare you? And also, why are we not losing our minds? We need to be treating this like an emergency. And nobody is treating it like an emergency. And I feel that way about this as well, especially with children of my own, because I want them. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed that during the podcast, you were, you're always mama bear, but you could, I could really tell it when she was talking about protecting children, you were like puffing up. Because oh my like, God. I, mean, I could just, yeah, you, it's like every scenario just started to tear, like who you're leaving your children with, who is around your children, who are their teachers at school, who, all of those things. I'm sure you can't be paranoid, but no, but I'd like that she gave me in a way. And I think other people, the permission to be like, it's okay to sit your kids down and have these Seeming because it like I think innately you feel like it's a ridiculous kind of conversation to have mm-hmm. like or am I traumatizing them by having this conversation? Exactly. You don't want to spark ideas or a, like make them uh, afraid to yeah. exist. You know, like yeah. I don't you don't want to scare them, but it's like you almost need to. But in a you know that's a I I really like I read her one of the children's book the other one I couldn't get in time it's coming in the you mail. read Chad keeps a secret right yes and it really. It hit home as far as that it is not only just our responsibility as parents, but we need to also make our kids responsible enough to notice when their friends are going through things. And that as a society, it it takes a village, you know, for everything else. So for this, it takes a village too. So all around, I just like love what she's doing, doing it from every angle too. Thank you to Lisa for being such a Dr. Smith. Yeah. <laughs> for or Smith. being such a uh, yeah, or Smith. Uh, for being such a safe space and such an open, incredible vessel for people like us who have been through trauma. She really, you know, I encourage everybody to go to her. She is the founder of righttoconsent.com. That's the number two, righttoconsent.com. And we also sort of coined during the podcast, instead of the Me Too movement, it's kids too. Yeah, hashtag kids that, too. Hashtag kids too. And I think that that is, like she said, that's way more because all of those women who who said me too were also children at one point. 
who probably things happened as well, you know? So I think that what we're doing here and what she did here today is just so profound. And I, we, I know we thank her profusely. Yeah. And I think that it's a huge testament. Like anybody else, I know that she was so, she stayed on and talked to us for far too long after the podcast, because that's how passionate and involved she is. And so that anybody that wants to speak to her, I know she would just welcome that. I mean, God bless her. She put up with so many technical issues that we had because she was like, this is going to happen. And so thank you. She she even went out to her car and and let her continue the interview in her car because of the drilling. And then our platform was failing. It it was just a hot mess, but we (sighs) we did it. And I'm grateful to her for sticking through that and, and for being such a advocate in all ways for everybody. It's not, this is not just a women's issue. This is an everybody issue. So thank you to her and thank you to you. And I love you and I can't wait to see you again. You too. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.